we were studying the Mandukya Karika and we are on the last chapter, the fourth chapter, Alata Shanti Prakaranam. Uh, there, Gaurapada is dealing with a number of philosophical opponents, multiple schools uh, which were prevalent at his time, who oppose non-dualistic Vedanta, Dvaita Vedanta. You know, why is it important to study these ancient philosophical schools, some of which are not active anymore, they are of academic interest. So what is it to us, especially if we have a spiritual interest, not just, we are not, we are not here just to learn an ancient philosophy just for the fun of it, though it is fun, but still, we are interested in our own spiritual development, in our own spiritual growth. What good is it to know those things? Well, those questions are our questions. Many of the questions which we have, we'll see that they are asked by these various philosophical schools. I remember uh, a monk, a friend of mine, many years ago, in, in our Belurmat, we were talking about this. And he said, that though we don't come across a Nayaika or a Vaisheshika or, or a Sankhyan in our day-to-day -day life today, um, but there is a Nayaika inside us, there is a Buddhist inside us, there is a Sankhyan inside us. And we ask these questions. Sometimes questions so deep and so profound, so subtle. We wouldn't have never thought of these things. The questions, anything that we can think of, and many things that we cannot think of, these are asked by these schools. It's good to deal with them. Um, especially since this is the way of knowledge. It's good to clarify things. Often, our understanding becomes much deeper when it is challenged. So there is a, it's called Stuna Nikandana Nyaya in Sanskrit, a figure of speech, which means um, when you drive a pillar, a post into the ground, you have to ram it into the ground so it's firm. The way we do it normally is we drive it in, pull it out, and then again drive it in back, back again. So this, the second time or third time, when you pull it out and drive it back in, it's even more firm. It goes deeper and stays uh, steady. Similarly, when we are asked questions and um, uh, we uh, deal with these questions, we, at first, you may even be shaken. You may think that I never thought of that. It seems to be a serious problem in our philosophy. And when you work out the answer, when these ancient masters give you the answer or show you what is the solution, your understanding, our understanding of Advaita becomes deeper. So that's the uh, purpose of these dialectics, even as a spiritual seeker. It's very important. It clarifies. Um, there are, even if, if you study it and you feel that we have understood it, there are still uh, depths, uh, angles to it, aspects which need to be clarified. So this helps. Um, so there were these two different schools of causality. One is the Satkaryavada, the other the Asatkaryavada. Gaurapada, after he starts the chapter by saluting Guru and God, God as the first guru, and then salutes the teaching of Atma Vidya, the self-knowledge itself, and then takes up these uh, different schools. Uh, there is this. The whole question is, how did the many come from the one? Um, these, all of these schools say the world was created. How? What is, the, uh, what is the causal process? So there is a cause which gives rise to an effect. Um, there is some cause, God, who created the world. The question is how? And there are basically two big players in this, on this question, two big schools. One is the, the, those who say that the cause itself becomes the effect. 
the cause is transformed into the effect. The effect pre-existed in the cause in a potential form. So this pre-existence of the effect in the cause uh, is called, the school is called Sat Karya Vada. Karya means effect. Cause, Karanam is cause. So the plant, the seedling, existed in a potential form in the seed. And there are arguments for this. And today, in, with our modern genetics and all, we would tend to agree. Yes, at least the information which led to the development of the plant, that's all there uh, genetically coded in the seed itself. Though in the seed, if you open it up, you don't see um, leaves and fruits and flowers and you know roots. No, but the entire information, potentiality is there. So that's one group. The effect, the world pre-existed in Brahman. And Brahman was transformed into the world. That's one. Uh, Satkaryavada. The other is the effect did not pre-exist in, in, the, in the cause. It's a new product. It's something new that has emerged. Asatkaryavada. Non-pre-existence of the effect. So the first group are the Sankhyas. The Sankhya philosophers. Um, and the second group are the uh, Nayaikas. Nyaya Vaisheshika school. The technical terms are Satkaryavada and Asatkaryavada. Just a little note here. Advaita Vedanta is also classified as Satkaryavada. Uh, but it's not the way the Sankhyans um, understand Satkaryavada. The Sankhyans say the cause is actually transformed into the effect. So milk becomes transformed into curd or yogurt. And the seed actually becomes transformed into the seedling, the plant. But what Advaita Vedanta says, is that the cause only appears as the effect. The rope does not become transformed into the snake. Uh, the desert does not become transformed into an oasis. It looks like water. It, it's mistaken for a snake. The rope is mistaken for a snake. The dreamer's mind actually does not become transformed into a dream world. No, it only conceives of it, uh, imagines it. So these are the two different approaches. Um, the approach of the Advaitin is called Vivartavada. This is a unique approach of Advaita Vedanta to causality. Vivartavada. Vivarta means appearance, not a real transformation. The cause only appears to be an effect. And I must add again, it's not that the non-dualist disputes that the seed becomes a plant. In our day-to-day -day life, the non-dualist admits Satkaryavada, like the Sankhya. Yes, the seed does become transformed into the plant. Yes, milk does become uh, transformed into curd. Um, the Advaita never argues that milk is appearing as the curd. Uh, the seed is appearing as the plant. No, really the seed has been transformed into the plant, milk into curd. But what the Advaita is saying, at the root of it, before there were seeds and milk and this entire universe, from Brahman, this universe emerges not as a transformation of Brahman, but as an appearance of Brahman. I'll repeat that. The transformation theory is admitted by Advaita Vedanta at the transactional, Vyavaharika, empirical level. In our day-to-day -day dealings, if you ask the non-dualist, forget about your Brahman and Turi and all that. Day-to-day. -day, is um, um, milk transformed into curd? Does the seed blossom into a plant? Or is it only all appearance? No. The Advaitin says that it actually happens. Just like you would admit it, the Sankhyan says that Advaitin accepts it. But 
The whole thing is an appearance of Brahman. It's not a transformation of Brahman. In Sanskrit, it's put very compactly. Um, Brahma vivarta prakriti parinama. Uh, Brahman appears as this universe. And Maya or Prakriti is transformed into this universe. So within the universe, in our day-to-day -day life, whatever theory of causation you want to take up, Advaita is comfortable with that, especially with the Sankhya and Satkarya Vada. Enough about that. That's it. Now, what Gaudapada did was, he said, look, we don't agree with either Satkarya Vada or Satkarya Vada, ultimately. Um, his, his approach is, he says, these philosophical schools are, they contradict each other, vivada, whereas Advaita is avivada, is not, is not involved in any debate or any controversy. He says avivada, aviruddha. And to show it is avivada, beyond controversy, beyond debate, he shows that these schools cancel each other out. He says the Satkaryavadin says that the effect was pre-existing in the cause, but it also says that when your opponents say that, effect was not pre-existing in the cause, the Satkaryavadin denies that. So you are wrong when you say that effect was not pre-existing in the cause. It was. And the Asatkaryavadin, the opposite, they say that the effect was not pre-existing in the cause. It came new. It's something, it's new product. So they cancel each other out. The Satkaryavada cancels the Asatkaryavada with many, with many reasons, which we will see. With many reasons. And the Asatkaryavadin, those schools who say that the new world emerges, and they cancel the Satkaryavada with many reasons. Since they mutually cancel each other out, they are mutually refuted. And Dadvaitin says, I don't have to do anything. The Satkaryavadin has shown the falsity of the uh, Asatkaryavadin. The Asatkaryavadin has shown the falsity of the Satkaryavadin. And later he will give the reasons why. It's, it's a long, long debate, hundreds of years. But what Gaudapada is doing, he's taking it neutrally. He says, all your reasons are good. I admit it. There's really good reasons. You have really good reasons to show your opponent is wrong. And your opponent has really good reasons to show that you are wrong. So both of you are wrong. And I win because I never got involved in all of this. Now, um, you may say, that's pretty clever. But what do you say? How did the world come from Turiya, uh, from Brahman? What's your point? You are, these are the two options. You agree with neither. Then what do you want to say? So now Gaudapada brings forth the Advaitic position. But first he sums up the non-controversial or non-debated non nature of Advaita in verse number five. In verse number five. The dualists, they uh, debate each other and cancel each other out. And the non-dualist is the victor. So this is what number five says. He says, Avivadam Nibodhat. Let me read out the translation. So, the translation, we approve of the birthlessness, the non-origination theory that is revealed by them. By whom? By those the philosophers. We do not quarrel with them. O disciples, understand that this philosophy is free from dispute. This philosophy is free from dispute. So, 
There's a little bit of humor here also. You can see. So what are these philosophers proved by their debates? They have proved the, our philosophy of non-origination, that the universe did not originate. Because how, how did they prove? They will immediately protest. We never said anything like that. You don't have to say it. Every possible uh, theory of origination is proved to be wrong by one or the other of you. So if every possible, if it is not possible that there can be origination, exactly what we are saying, non-origination. The universe never originated from Brahman. That's what we have said in the second and third chapters earlier. And that's what you have shown me unwittingly. You don't want to show me that, but you have shown me that. And he says, this ajatim, the theory of non-origination, which has been shown by or the, or the non-origination nature of the ultimate reality or the non-origination of the world let's put it this way non-origination of the world which has been shown by you or revealed by you we we give us give it our stamp of approval you've shown us and we say good we agree we didn't even try you showed it to us and we do not dispute with you with them we do not dispute Avivadam nibodhata. Thus, you understand the non-debatable non or non-controversial nature of Advaita. So all this was in trying to, was, he was exp explaining the term Avivada. How is Advaita beyond debate? All right, very good. Now, what is the Advaitic position? So in the next few verses, he uh, gives us the Advaitic position. What is the ultimate reality? And what is this thing that we are experiencing? What is the one and what is the many? What is the relationship between Brahman and the world? According to you, O Gaudapada, since you are so clever, please do tell us. Now what he will say here in the next three verses actually is a repetition. Um, verse number six, seven and eight, you will see it's, uh, uh, it's complete copy and paste from third chapter. Verse number 20, 21, and 22, I think. Um, yes, 20, 21, and 22. So the Advaita theory of non-duality and non-origination is repeated here. But very nice verses. Let's go through them quickly. Number six, verse number six. Ajatasyeva dharmasya Jatim ichanti vadinaha Ajato yamrito dharmo Matyatam kathameshyati. Translation The debaters or the philosophers, they vouch for or they, they, they show or they vouch for the birth of an unborn positive entity. But how can a positive entity that is unborn and immortal undergo mortality? What they are all saying is that there is an ultimate reality. All of them say some God or Brahman or something. And they say that this reality is, it, it becomes this world. It becomes the world and us. Jagat and Jiva. There is an ultimate reality, call it God. And God becomes or produces whatever you call, whatever your theory is. From that, God has come this world and us also we have come. But he asks, how is the unborn going to be born? How is the changeless going to change? How is the immutable be going to become the uh, world and us individual beings? If the 
immutable, the unchanging becomes something. It is, I mean, to, uh, I can't resist this. It's very unbecoming of the absolute to do that. <laughs> uh, all right. So what is this theory? Um, what, what is this uh, that Gaurapada is objecting to? He's saying that all the dualistic theories, they do agree that there is some ultimate reality. And many of them are theistic religions which call it God, Ishwara. From God has come this world. God creates the universe and God creates us sentient beings, individuals. All right, what's wrong with that? What's wrong is if you ask all these philosophers, is your God immortal? Yes, of course, God cannot die. Is your God unborn? Is there a birth of God? And when the children will ask, who created the world? God created it. Who created God? Children will keep on asking, who? How, where did God come from? If the universe came from God, then where did God come from? With that question, all the theistic schools, dualistic schools will inflexibly, they will say that there is no birth of God. God is the first cause. There is no cause. Philosophically speaking, first cause. Christian theology, um, Islamic theology, um, uh, you know, Vaishnavas, uh, Shaivas, Shaktas, anybody who believes as God as the cause of the universe will say God is the first cause. There is no cause of God. God is unborn. Nobody gives birth to God. God is also immortal. God never dies. I was um, studying Buddhism and uh, it's very interesting. They insist that everything changes. And there's a reason why they say everything changes. Moment to moment, everything is changing. There is, if there's something that's unchanging, that cannot be real. What is real is always changing for them. Because what is real, um, well, how do you define reality? For the Buddhist, that which can produce an effect is a reality. That which can produce an effect is a reality. Um, so water in, in your glass is real because when you drink it, it produces the desired effect, quenches your thirst. But water in the mirage is not real because when you go to drink it, you cannot. It does not produce the desired effect or expected effect. So it's not real. Um, producing an effect is the sign of reality, number one. Now, this is Buddhism. Number two, to produce an effect, the cause must change. Always, the cause remaining unchanging cannot produce anything. Production is a process of change. So to be real, something must be a cause, it must produce an effect, and to be a cause, one must change. Therefore, all real things change. All real things change. Change also means perish. So all real things will be born and they perish. Cause and effect is all that there is. So this is the basic Buddhist view of this universe. This arising, that arises. This not arising, that does not arise. This is the Buddhist view of causality. But the, why I'm saying all this is, the interesting thing is, even the Buddhists who do not admit God, even the Buddhists, if you ask them, what is the ultimate goal? Nirvana. Nirvana. Now, is that nirvana unchanging or changing? Unchanging. Nirvana is unchanging. So <laughs> you'll say if it's unchanging, then according to your philosophy, it's unreal. No, nirvana is both real and unchanging. So there they will make an exception. So for every, why I said Buddhist, because it's a non-theistic philosophy. It's not, uh, uh, they're not talking about God. In fact, there many of them are outright atheistic. 
But even in their philosophy, there is an ultimate reality to be attained, which is unchanging. And of course, all the theistic religions talk about uh, God. Now, Gaudapada's objection is this. You are saying that the ultimate reality is unchanging, immortal, unborn, always existing. And then you are saying it transforms into the effect. It produces something. Production can be of, in two ways. Um, according to the Nayaikas, the cause uh, is ch changes and produces an effect different from it. Asatkaryavada. And according to the Sankhyans, the cause itself changes into the effect. But in each case, there must be some change in the cause. How can the unchanging change? This is what Gaudapada is pointing out. Look at your own contradiction, O oh, dualists. You all admit unchanging God. And then you all admit that God produces the universe. But production, according to your own philosophy, means change. Then God changes. If God changes, then God is subject to change. And then God will be subject to increase and decrease, birth and death. Not God anymore. By your own definition, because you, you admit an unchanging God. So this is what he is saying. Look at the verse. Ajatasya dharmasya. Here, some of these words are very Buddhistic. Um, so he uses words like dharma. By dharma, he does not mean the way we understand dharma, moral or religion or ethics. Here, Buddhists, by Buddhist, Buddhist men, these sentient beings, they call them dharma. Uh, he again and again uses this term. We, jivas, what we in Vedanta call jiva, the Buddhists sometimes call them dharma, sometimes call them bhava. And Gaudapada uses a lot of Buddhist terminology. There is some ultimate unborn reality. These philosophers say that unborn is born. They will say, no, 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 God is not born. World is born. Yes, it comes to the same thing. If the world is born from God, then God must change in some form or the other. There must be some change somewhere. Ajato himrato dharma matyatam katham ishyati. The immortal and unborn. Amrita, immortal. Ajata, unborn, ultimate reality. How can you say it, it is born? You see, why the dualists get into this tangle? Uh, I mentioned Alan Watts, the clay and pot example. See, the, the whole idea is when you start with the pot, then the way you proceed, remember, it's not about a pot, it's about the world and God, but let's start with pot. Uh, the example is pot. When you start with the pot, you are told that there is a cause of the pot. Pot is subject to beginning and destruction, but the cause of the pot um, is not subject to beginning and destruction. Pot is created, pot is destroyed. So what is this wonderful cause? The cause is clay. Cause means material cause. Material out of which the pot is made. There is a material from which, in which this pot is born. Cause is clay, effect is pot. Effect comes and goes. Where does it come from? From the clay. Where does it go when it is broken? Back to the clay. So this clay is immortal, within quotes. But the effect part is mortal. It can be broken. It can be made, it can be broken. So wonderful, there is such this um, effect, this cause must be wonderful. Now, if you stop there, there, this is dualism. You have established cause and effect, God and the world. God, on one side, on one side God, and on the other side, the world and us individuals. What is the problem? The problem is now that this becomes, if you stop here, it becomes a problem. The problem is, where is this God? We seem to think that 
the clay is separate and pot is separate. God is separate and the world is separate. And now this God becomes a matter of faith. Um, religion will teach us there is God in Vaikuntha, in heaven. Um, think about God and believe in God, worship in God. And God is the cause of the universe and therefore all powerful and God only can rescue us and all these things will come up. And any rational investigation, just like Gaurapada is saying, or modern atheists, if you take this idea, God is the cause of the universe. Every modern scientist and atheist will laugh at it and will prove it. It will take five minutes for them to disprove the whole thing. Alan Watts calls it the crackpot theory. Not that the theory itself is wrong. The theory itself, the problem is you stop too early. What Advaita Vedanta says is, yes, pot, stage one. Stage two, clay is the cause, pot is the effect. Stage two. Stage three, investigate the effect. You ask now, where is that uh, cause? Where is God? Uh, Advaita says, look at the effect. The material cause will always be there in, in the effect. So when you look at the pot, you will see clay. You will find clay there. Where will you find clay? Outside the pot. I mean, on the outside, on the inside, on the top, in the bottom. Through and through, you will discover that it is clay and clay only. The pot is clay and clay only. This means that there is no pot apart from the clay. There is no such thing called a pot apart from the clay. This is Advaita is doing this. The, the dualist has all just stopped in the second stage itself. Cause and effect. God and the world. Stop. Advaita is saying, look at the pot. You will find the clay everywhere in it. Not only everywhere. Now if you ask, what is this thing called pot, which is supposed to have been produced from the clay? Apart from the clay, where is this thing called pot? You say pot has been produced. Show me. Here, you're holding it. No, I'm holding clay. Every bit. What I'm touching is clay. What you're seeing is clay. Then where is this pot? You realize suddenly that there is no part apart from the clay. There is no effect apart from the cause. In fact, Advaita says, go one step further and say, actually, this is all the third step. When you go one step further, you see that the part is only a name. It's only a name given to uh, the clay. It's only a shape, a form. And it's only use. In clay, you can't store water. In the pot, you can store water. Vyavahara. This is the form rupa, and this is the name pot. Name, form, use. But materially, the substance wise, reality wise, it is clay and clay only. Then the final conclusion if the clay has not really produced a pot apart from it, if the cause has not really produced an effect apart from it, without effect, why will you call the cause a cause? Let me repeat that. Why do you call something a cause? Because it produced an effect. But the effect, effect has not really been produced. There's no new thing called effect. No new second thing called a pot apart from the clay. You can't show it. If the effect is not there really, then the cause is not really a cause. It doesn't mean the cause will disappear. Only its name, the term cause, will disappear. The reality remains. Neither cause nor effect. Beyond cause and effect. Karya, karana, vilakshana. Similarly, Atman, existence, consciousness, bliss, pure being or pure awareness. You discover it in every aspect of our experience. Then you realize this world which you are experiencing is not apart from consciousness. There's no world you experience other than, other than in consciousness. 
when you realize this world is simply name form and use nama rupa vyavahara superimposed on consciousness right now and therefore consciousness is not turiya is not a cause and world is not an effect turiya is cause and effect vilakshana the reality is other than transcending cause and effect so this is the advaita position we have done all this earlier now this is what gaudapada is talking about now as we go through this these verses are very good it's just a reiteration of what we have done it might be disturbing to dualistic uh, conception that's why theistic or dualistic uh, philosophers uh, religious people uh, they dislike advaita if my approach is basically dualistic i will find this disturbing so what do you do what i feel is either we adopt this approach if you approach adopt this approach you can still be devotional at a transactional level there's no problem shankaracharya was devotional there's no problem at all but your primary your when you're pushed you will admit that this is the reality this is what advaitins do this is how we see it in transaction of course there is a temple or a church and uh, there is devotion i enjoy it i love doing that but i know ultimately at the most fundamental level as the ultimate truth i am that if we can if you're comfortable with this attitude go ahead this is no problem this is this is really for you then and this is the most i would say that is the best situation but there are some there are many in fact who are deeply devotional by nature and this kind of approach hurts them and it may actually be damaging to their spiritual practice so for them if you are there in a mandukya class um what i would recommend is you go ahead with your nishtha that means your devotion to god that it itself is very helpful and that will give everything this one you sort of bracket it off as study of of uh, advaita philosophy yes this is what advaita teaches now i know it why i'm saying this is in the class i will not make a compromise when i'm teaching mandukya karika i will teach mandukya karika Uh, i will not try to water it down or uh, dilute it by saying now let me fit gaudapada back into my krishna bhakti ram bhakti or jesus bhakti no so uh, my theological framework no he smashes all of that and if i in this fourth chapter especially he smashes all of that and if i don't show it i will not be um, fulfilling my responsibilities as a teacher so yes um now all right if you have questions hold on to that let me go on arjun has a question wait you have to be unmuted shashank yeah pranam maharaj namaste so a uh, lot of uh, it's little off topic but i needed some clarification so lot of people consider mind and ignorance as synonymous but mind is kind of inert so am i right in saying that mind is a product of ignorance not the other way around mind is a product of ignorance and ignorance is also inert the first def- definition of ignorance um, of of advaita vedanta which we all memorized vastu sachidananda madvayam brahma the only reality is the non dual existence consciousness bliss brahman that's the only reality agyanaadi sakala jada samuha avastu starting from ignorance agyanaadi ignorance etc 
the entire set jada samuha the entire set of inert entities avastu unreal so the first unreal product the product itself is unreal is uh, and maya is not a product maya is the cause and everything else is a transformation of maya so starting from maya or avidya or ignorance from there and all its products they are all um, appearances mithya thank you thank you um Amjad, there's also a question on the chat from her. Uh, we, we just let it be there. Uh, we'll take it up. Let me just do a couple of more verses. The reason is, um, this is one topic. He is repeating the conclusions of Advaita Vedanta, which we have already done in the third chapter. So let me just repeat, uh, let me just go through the other two, two other verses, seven and eight. The immortal cannot become mortal. Similarly, the mortal cannot become immortal. The mutation of one's nature can take place in no way whatsoever. So what is one's essential nature can never change. Which means Turiya or the Atman can never be born, can never be an effect. And what is born can never be the ultimate reality. So what is being said here? You see, the way we understand it, the dualistic philosophers and all dualistic frameworks, there is an ultimate reality, God, and God has created us separate from God. So there is God separate from us and we have been created. You're right. God cannot change. God is unchangeable, but we are changing and we are separate from God. So God is not harmed by that. You know, your original idea that uh, the original objection of God of Father, how can the immortal change into something? So we are saying that the immortal God does not, does not change into anything. God is immortal, unborn and immortal and undying, but God has created us. Somehow we are separate from God. And here we are, uh, sentient beings, uh, we are individuals, um, and uh, we are, we go from life to life, suffering because of our karma in different bodies, in different life experiences, and finally, uh, we, uh, by the grace of God, by our prayer and meditation and good works, we finally get moksha, and in moksha, uh, we. There are different kinds of moksha. Uh, in, in, these are all dualistic philosophies. So salokya, in the same world as God, that means we go to heaven and stay with God. Samipya, uh, closeness, that means we stay in the presence of God. They're all very devotional relationships. Then um, sarupya, by meditating on God, we become God-like. We attain the form as if like God. Uh, then there is Sayujya, becoming oneness uh, with God. By meditating, we feel a oneness with God. No, we don't literally become God, but we feel this oneness with God. We have a, um, and there are different ways of describing it. So these, this is the worldview of one group of dualists. Now, the problem is, if God has created us and we are separate from God, and we have somehow fallen from uh, heaven, or we are trapped in samsara and going through all this. And finally, we'll go back to that place. 
then if you're separate from God, then God is not here. God is there in heaven. This is not um, where God is. God is somewhere else. Separation in space. God is in some other time. Right now, I am not with God. Then I will be with God. After death, post-mortem spirituality. Or um, after, uh, uh, you know, uh, after the pralaya, when the universe is destroyed, finally, cosmos cosmic dissolution, then I will be one with God. Then, pretty long time. Or in different ways. We are, in many of us, we accept these things. You know, like, um, or after I attain uh, moksha, subtle point, after I attain moksha, I will be one with God. Which I am not be one with God now. Then, after moksha, after salvation, after um, liberation, I will be one with God. After enlightenment, I will be one with God. Huh? Uh, another mistake. Now I am not one with God. After enlightenment, I will be in the presence of God or one with God. After samadhi or in samadhi, then only I will be one with God. Not now. Now I am in samsara. All of this, Gaudapada says, is, is a deep, deep mistake. Because if you think like this, then you have limited God. Think what you are saying. God is not here. God is there. So there is a space. There is a place where God is not there. This world, this universe, which is all that we know. Then God is not here. There is some other world, some heaven where God is. God is not now. God is then. After cosmic dissolution, after samadhi, after enlightenment, after moksha, then. Not now. And God is something else. We said I was separate from God. God has created us separate. But if God has created us separate from God, you are admitting. Oh, dualist, be careful of what you are admitting. You are admitting there are things which are apart from God. There are things which are not God. There are realities which are not God. Then your God is limited. God is limited means there is a place where God is not there. There is a time where God is not there. And there are things, many, many things, billions of entities and all of us which are not God, which are apart from God. Such a God which is limited in time, space and object, limited by time, space and object, is within Maya, is not above Maya. Everything within Maya is limited. Everything limited is subject to change. Everything subject to change is subject to destruction. Then your God will die. God will be born and will die. Thing which you started with, that immortal God is not possible within Maya. This is one approach. The other approach is, is they say, no, no, I understand. I'm not saying I'm separate from God. I understand that I am Brahman. And this world is nothing other than Brahman. But now, before this creation of the world, before my birth, before I was created, I was one with God. Now, I have become this Jiva. I am Brahman, but now I have become Jiva. Before creation, I was one with Brahman. But now I have become this Jiva. I am uh, going from life to life. And after my spiritual practices, after I gain enlightenment, I will again be one with Brahman. And I will say, yes, I am Brahman. But right now, no. Again, a big mistake. Gaudapada says, that Brahman, immortal, which can be transformed into a mortal being, subject to birth and death. That Brahman, infinite, which can be transformed into limited being like me. Limited in, in space, in time, in power, in capacity. That Brahman, which is 
one and non-dual, which can be actually changed into many billions and this all duality and plurality. That Brahman is not Brahman at all. It's an impossibility. If it is possible, then that Brahman is no longer immortal. So Brahman, if you admit the nature of Tuli or Brahman cannot change, then you must admit Brahman is here. Brahman is now. And Brahman is you yourself. That Brahman which is everywhere, you must be here. That Brahman which is at all times must be now also. And that Brahman which is everything, nothing is different from that Brahman. Just like all pots are not different from clay. Nothing is different from Brahman. Then Brahman cannot be different from me. I must be that Brahman. Aham Brahmasmi. When? Now. Right now. Not after moksha. Right now. Not before creation. Right now. Before creation, during the so-called creation, and after the end of creation, the creation makes no difference to your Brahman nature. You are that Brahman. So, this is the seventh verse. Na bhavati amritam matyam. That which is immortal can never become mortal. That which is mortal, matyam, can never become immortal. Prakriti ranyatha bhava. Old nature, the, the essential nature, can never be different. Fire never becomes cold. So this is a typical example. So whenever there is fire, it must be hot. Brahman, as such, if you are Brahman, then you must eternally be Brahman. Right now, whether you, you understand it or not. Uh, in Uttarakhand, sadhus say, I heard one sadhu still studying Ashtavakra with him. Punjabi Sadhu, um, he said, uh, <coughs> bada hai ji. This is a very strange, paradoxical philosophy, uh, O Swamis. Tum jano ya na jano, mano ya na mano, tum hi ram. You know it or you do not know it. You accept it or you do not accept it. You are God. Tum hi ram. <laughs> you are Rama, you are God. Um, few days ago, Dora, I, I hope she is not listening. I don't know if she's there. Anyway, it doesn't matter. She uh, came to my door and she was banging on it and then she left a little note, uh, very urgent. Um, then I kept the note, very interesting. She says, she generally, uh, any phone calls come, she deals with it. But, uh, and she's not supposed to you know, transfer phone calls to me. But this was very urgent because this gentleman has been calling. He called nearly 10 times, I think, that morning. And uh, he has got a question. Uh, the note says, he, he wants to know who he is. And I told him, Dora said, I told him that he is, he is God, but he is not satisfied. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if Dora goes on that way, I'll be out of a job. It's my job to tell you, tell everybody that you are God. <laughs> You know it or not. You accept it or not. The fact is that you are Brahman. All right. Now a couple of... Let's take the... Yes. If you have got questions, there are some questions in chat. But before that, let me do the seventh one also. Eighth one also. Because it's all one set. Eight. Number eight. Swabhavenamrito yasya dharmo gachati matyatam kritake namritas kritake namritas tasya 
कथम स्थास्यति निश्चल नंबर नाइन All right, can't find the translation here. Uh, number nine says that which is by nature immortal, though that that ultimate reality or you, the the Atman, which is immortal by nature, and it becomes mortal. Did you not say that I was Brahman? Now I am a Jiva. I will become Brahman again by my spiritual practice. Then by such an artificially gained immortality, Kritakena Amritasya. How will that be firm? How will that be absolute? How will that be forever? So what he's asking here is, um, Gaudapada is saying, all right, let me grant what you are saying. Because many people think in this way, Gaudapada says, let's follow, it, follow that track. I was Brahman, um, but after creation, in samsara, I have somehow or the other, because of maya or something, I have become a jiva. I'm a sentient being now, jiva, an individual. I was the absolute. I am an individual being now. I was Brahman. I am a jiva now. So, and by my spiritual practices, over many lifetimes maybe, ultimately I will realize that I am Brahman. And when I realize, I will become Brahman again. I will become the absolute. The individual will become the absolute again. What Gaurapada objects to here is, he says, an immortality which was lost and you became mortal, and then by effort you became immortal again, what guarantee is there that it won't be lost again? If you were really Brahman and you somehow you became a jiva, and then again by all this attending lots of Mandukya classes, finally you become Brahman. What is to guarantee that you will not become a jiva again? If you are absolute and you slipped into uh, individuality, into, into an individual being, uh, and by spiritual practices you become the absolute again, actually you become the absolute, then why will you not come back again? The question what is being asked here is, is moksha liberation an actual event that happens in time? There are many events in our lives. So will one day an event come which is called moksha, liberation. I was bound so, so long, now I am liberated. It seems to be like that. The whole way we are taught, um, whether in all Indian philosophies, that we are in the cycle of birth and death. And then finally, one day we will be liberated. All of this was real. And now that liberation also will be real. Or in every religion that we are now trapped in the world, we have this worldly existence, and one day we will be liberated from it, we will attain salvation. Now, Gaurapada again objects to all this. He says, that which is an artificial moksha will be, is, is always vulnerable to being lost. That which is produced will be lost one day. If moksha is not our nature, if it is something that comes, it can again go away. If it is our nature, Moksha is our real nature, then it must be here now. I had moksha earlier, I have moksha now, and then I will, ha I, I will have moksha forever. Amritam means immortality. 
You see, the very word immortality means there cannot be any mortality. You cannot say, at one time I was mortal, then I became immortal. No. I was immortal. I am immortal. I will remain immortal. Immortality has nothing to do with time. It's always there. Uh, moksha is not an event in time. It's always real. And uh, what does Advaita do? Only this delusion of not having moksha, of being born in bondage, this delusion is dissolved. That the problem of not having moksha and then seeking moksha. What happens is when you get enlightenment, we realize that we always were free. And the seeking for freedom, the seeking for moksha ceases because it is my nature. I always was free and now I am free and always will be free. I just did not know it, did not feel it, did not realize it. I was not. One point here. Moksha is your real nature. You don't have to attain moksha. All this is Advaita Vedanta. Remember, Gaudapada. It's quite different from everything else that you hear. From Gaudapada's perspective, from Advaita Vedanta perspective, you don't have to work for moksha. You don't have to do spiritual practices for moksha. It is already there. It is ours. You are always beyond samsara. Never were affected by samsara. Never had a birth. Never had a death. Only thing is that we are not yet enlightened. Advaita, remember, it does not say that you are already enlightened also. No. Some, why I'm saying this is some new Advaitins make the mistake. There's nothing to be done. You are not only you are um, the Atman or Brahman, you are also all enlightened being. Wrong. Big mistake. If you're already an enlightened being, then you don't need anything. You're already a Jivan Mukta. But honestly, can we claim that? If you cannot claim it, if we really feel that I'm not a Jivan Mukta now, if I'm not enlightened, then Advaita Vedanta is for you. And all this effort is to show us that our, uh, that our real nature is moksha. It is not something produced. So the immortal does not become mortal and does not have to become immortal again. And though you have never fallen into bondage, you will never gain uh, freedom. So there is no bondage and there is no gaining freedom. It never says that there is no freedom. There is freedom and that's your real nature. Moksha is our real nature. Moksha is another word for Atman. In fact, one Swami put it very beautifully, just as pot is only a name for what is actually clay, Jiva is only a name for Brahman. You are Brahman. You just have taken on a particular name, form and activity called Jiva. Okay, so this is the uh, restatement of Advaita. All of these verses are there in the third chapter, 20th, 21st and 22nd. Before we go on to the next one, let me take a couple of... Nobody has raised the hand. But chat. So one is Harpreet is saying, uh, what logic does a Sankhyan use to disprove Advaita? Hmm, I never thought of that. I always think about it from the Advaitic perspective. What logic does Advaita use to disprove Sankhya? Yes. Um, many things. For example, one thing which Advaita disputes with Sankhya is the plurality of selves. Advaita says we are one Atman, one consciousness. One absolute reality, non-dual, without a second. Non-duality means there cannot be many uh, beings. We all appear to be different, but we are only one. We appear to be different because we are associated with uh, these products of Maya, different bodies, different minds. And therefore, like light shining through different colored glass panes in a church, from inside you will get different colored light. 
but it's the same light which is streaming through that. So the, the colored glass makes a difference, not that the light is different. Similarly, we are one consciousness, but we are streaming through different filters, body-mind. We appear to be different. Sankhya says, no, no, no. Each body-mind, behind each body-mind is a separate self, separate Purusha. So there are many pure consciousnesses. Now you say, what logic? Argument. Sankhya says, your oneness argument does not hold ground. Why? Because if you are one self, then the birth of one would be the birth of all. The death of one would be the death of all. If one is happy, then all would be happy. Or if one is sad, then all would be sad. Even worse, if one is enlightened, then all would be, not worse, good in one sense. If one is enlightened, then all would be enlightened. If one is in ignorance, then everybody will be in ignorance because it, all, this, all of these pertains to the self. I am in ignorance. I am happy. I am sad. If I am one with everybody, then everybody will have the same effect. If one is sleeping, the other, everybody will fall asleep. Now, what will you say to this logic? I think, let me, you know, uh, see, how do you respond? Assignment? Anybody? You raise a hand or unmute yourself or something. Devanik, yes. Raj, I think the difference is in only body-mind. And... Uh, and mind and the, the Atman is the one that is unchanging. So Correct. When you say birth, birth of one is the birth of all, immediately uh, the simple answer is what, is what is this? The birth is of the body. Consciousness is not born with the birth of the body. Birth is of the body. One is sad, everybody will become sad. No, sadness is in the mind. Gaurapada would say, remember the example of different parts in space. If in one part there is dirty water, Will the water in all pots become dirty? No. In one pot, uh, it's a smoky. Will all pots become full of smoke? No. Uh, so what is in one mind need not be in all minds. Enlightenment, knowledge, comes in the mind of the guru. It would be very nice if everybody got the same enlightenment. But that will not happen. Because ignorance and enlightenment are both in the mind. They are not in, in consciousness. So all of these uh, arguments don't hold, hold good. Um, so yes, this is just one, one of the points. The second point in which Sankhya and Advaita dispute is the reality of the universe. Remember, when Advaita says consciousness is non-dual, not only does it mean that there are the many selves which appear are appearances, they are only in association with body and mind are we different, but actually we are not different. But it also means this, this huge universe with billions of different entities it must be an appearance because non-dual, no second. So from Brahman's point of view, there is no second entity. All these entities in the universe are actually appearances in Brahman. Um, so Sankhya will dispute it. Sankhya will say, no, they are all real. And there will be a debate. The debate boils down to that same Satkarya Vada versus that Vivarta Vada of Advaita Vedanta. The difference is, the, the solution which Advaita Vedanta gives is, Advaita Vedanta accepts two levels of truth, at least two or even three levels of truth. Paramarthika, absolute reality, Brahman only, Turiya, without a second, nothing else is there. Vyavaharika, transactional reality, where the entire world, Jiva, Jagat, Ishwar, all is admitted. There is Ishwar, God is there, world is there, we are all there, everything is, all dualistic practices, and they can go on. 
religious practices, secular activities, all of them go on in this transactional world. But this is not ultimately real. Ultimately only Brahman is real. And there is also a third level of reality, which is illusion, dream, appearance, right? So, um, Sankhya accepts only one level. That means basically one level. They, they do not make the distinction between Paramarthik and Vyavaharika. Here is this world and it is all Prakriti, real, and you are consciousness separate from it. This has to be realized. That's it. So this is where the real clash is. Um, there's a question. Prabir Babu, I think. Yes. Uh, Maharaj, can you hear me? I can hear you. Uh, so, Gaurapada did not use the Babaharika uh, argument, right? It, he, he did not use the Babaharika argument. So, for him, um, then he, 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 he was saying that the, all, the, all the dualism or, or all that stuff is in the body-mind. Am I correct? So, there is... Yes. For Gaudapada, he does not talk about uh, uh, Paramarthika, Vavaharika and uh, uh, Pratimasika, three levels. He actually talks about two levels. For him, there is the ultimate reality and everything else is um, an appearance. So, in fact, at one place, the three states, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, he reduces them to two states, sleep and dreaming. So, for him, dreaming is dreaming, waking is also dreaming. And sleep is deep sleep. So, yeah, that's what God of Father does. Okay, let me just finish the next two. Very beautiful verses have come. Twen uh, number 9 and 10. Um, we'll take the question after, after these two verses. Number 9. Samsiddhiki Swabhaviki Sahajakrita Chaya Prakriti Seti Vigyaya Swabhavam Najahatiya. He's talking about your essential nature as, as Brahman, as Turiya. It's a very nice verse. It reminds me of, oh, let me give you the translation first. Number. Nine. By the word nature, it is to be understood that which is permanently acquired or is intrinsic, instinctive, non-produced or unchanging in character. Okay, that sounds pretty dry, but actually it's pretty, uh, pretty inspiring. I was reminded when reading this verse, uh, Dr. Radhakrishnan, Sarvapalli Radhakrishnan had once said, um, our ultimate goal is to become what we are. And that sounds paradoxical, don't you see? But it makes total sense to to us here in the Mandukya class. Our ultimate goal is to become what we are. And here he says, what we are is Turiya. That is our real nature. This is our spiritual heritage. We are that already. And he says, it can never be lost. We are choicelessly, we are Brahman. We are ever immortal, ever free of death. No coronavirus can kill you, the Turiya. Uh, and uh, ever free of misery, ever free of the cycle of birth and death, ever fulfilled that we are hungering, going around with a begging bowl in the world for a little bit of happiness. No, you're ever fulfilled, already fulfilled. So this is our real nature. And for that, he gives um, 
examples. Gaudapada gives examples. What is this real nature like? That you are Brahman, you are Turiya, what is it like? Samsiddhiki. This requires little explanation. Thank God that Shankaracharya has given us a commentary. Siddhi here means the supernatural powers acquired by yogis. So in Patanjali Yoga Sutras, um, in the uh, third chapter, Siddhi Pada, there are descriptions of multiple supernatural occult powers. You can fly, you can levitate, you can read other people's minds, you can control other people, and all those things are there. So uh, these things you find in every religion, actually. Serious spiritual practitioners, whatever your path, you will come across these extraordinary phenomena. They are called um, ESP, eh? extrasensory powers. Now, what, he, what Shankaracharya means here is, there are people that there are yogis who by their past lives practices are born with these powers. From their early childhood, they spontaneously manifest these powers which have been acquired by yogic practices in past lives and um, they will retain these powers throughout their life in, in this life. Remember, these powers do not mean, mean that a person is very spiritual. May not be. There are very spiritual people, advanced spiritual practitioners who may not display these powers. There are people who display these powers who may not at all be particularly spiritual, maybe pretty worldly also. Now, I met a person many years ago in India. So there is a university dedicated to studying yoga. It's called S. Vyasa. It's near Bangalore. Vivekananda Yoga Anusandhana Kendra, something like that. So there, there was a seminar there. I went, I was one of the speakers. And um, they have a whole section dedicated to the study of these extraordinary powers. Interesting. Um, so I went, they took me on a tour. They use a lot of modern gadgets and all to, to study whether it's possible or not. Now there was this one person, an American guy there, who was one of the speakers. He demonstrated a lot of these, several of these extraordinary powers. And in front of us, he was re mind reading and predicting and all these things. Now, you know that many of these things are magic tricks. So any magician, any illusionist can give a very um, convincing, a spectacular demonstration. So there are such people everywhere in the world, magicians. And there's a, there's a trick. There's, there's, it's uh, an illusion. It's not really, a, they're not really superpowers or anything like that. So I wanted to know how much of that was magic tricks and how much of that was a real power. So one day after breakfast, um, and this gentleman was the disciple of a guru, uh, of, a, of actually an Advaita guru. So this gentleman, American gentleman, after breakfast, I was walking in the lawn, I saw him and I went up to him, started speaking with him. And then I said, just for my own conviction, simple test, just, just right now, just right now, just tell me right now what's on my mind. So nothing complicated, more complicated, easy to trick you. So what's on my mind? And he said, think of a number. I thought of a number. And then uh, he wrote down something on a piece of paper and gave it to me. He said, now tell me your number. I said, 19. Look at the, look at the piece of paper. He had written down 19. Now, that's a very simple test. And can you read the mind? Yes. Okay. Immediately. And that can be a little scary to see that somebody who can actually read your mind straight away. <laughs> um, I asked him, 
so how much of what you displayed was an actual um, you know like siddhi spiritual power or the supernatural power not spiritual supernatural power how much of it was magic tricks some of it was magic tricks how much was spiritual power or this uh, supernatural powers how much magic trick he smiled and he said i'll never tell you <laughs> it's a mix of both then i asked him what does your guru say about these things he smiled he said he said my guru says it's all nonsense do you shouldn't do these things now what is shankaracharya's commentary here what what does godapada want to say just as these yogis some of these people oh i asked him when did you get these so he said something interesting he said i did not get these powers by any spiritual practice i got them from a childhood they just automatically they, they started happening one day and they have been there every time i want i can do these things so he says samsid dikhi coming from past lives these powers spontaneously manifest just like that you are turiyam you have the greatest superpower of all which makes you immortal nothing can kill you nothing can destroy you you the pure consciousness there is no chance of it at all it makes you the reality of this universe the entire universe appears in you like a movie you are the reality of the universe universe depends on you you are not a tiny little creature which depends on the universe not at all it makes you completely ever fulfilled as turiyam you do not need anything from anybody from life life and death are the same to you we have to stay alive no or life is horrible i have to die no neither attraction nor repulsion you are ever fulfilled you are the infinite what is one small life to you what is one little death to you nothing that is your superpower and you are born with it much greater than all these supernatural powers samsiddhi ki swabhavik ki swabhavik ki means every object has its own nature swabhav so like fire the classic example fire is hot whenever there is fire it's hot similarly similarly whatever you think you are you are actually in that sense your very nature is that you are turiya your pure consciousness then sahaja things which are born with so so he he gives an example of uh, shankaracharya gives an example the way the birds fly at one point the chicks of the bird the, they develop and they launch maybe sometimes the mother might nudge them into off the nest and they start flying around exactly like that that my nature is thuriyam and that i can manifest it and live a life of being a jivan mukta it's exactly like that it is in born it's your own spiritual heritage it's your birthright sahaja you are born with it and then akrita not artificial natural he gives the example of water falling down down so water rolls downhill natural nothing has to be done about it it's because of gravity it rolls downhill exactly like that thuriyam is natural for you and then shankaracharya says all of these whether it is supernatural powers of yogis whether it is the heat in the fire natural property whether it is the instinctive ability to fly in a bird whether it is all natural actions hap- happening like water rolling downhill all of these are still within maya they are all appearances your real nature is higher than these it is paramarthic you are brahman prakriti sa vigyaya you this is your real nature swabhavam na jahati which you can never give up So these are certain examples uh, how many sansiddhi ki 1 swabhavi ki 2 sahaja 3 akrita 4 four examples here last 
number 10. Jara marana nirmukta sarve dharma swabhavata jara marana man vichcha no jara marana michanta javante tanmanishaya translation 10th verse so intrinsically by nature all souls all of us all sentient beings are intrinsically free from old age and death but by imagining old age and death and being engrossed in that thought you lose your or you appear to lose your intrinsic nature he says so you are thurium birth death disease old age these do not affect you in, in um, Gita, Sri Krishna, 13th chapter, he says, Janma Mrityu Jara Vyadi Dukkha Doshanu Darshanam. The first thing is to see that birth is sorrow, death is sorrow, um, old age is sorrow, disease is sorrow. Maturity means you must see these things, that, uh, you must understand, viscerally understand. Bill, who is 95 years old, Yesterday he was telling me, he was, he was quoting uh, Betty, Dav uh, Betty Davis and he was quoting Betty Davis and said, uh, old age is not for sissies. Old age is not for sissies. <laughs> old age is tough. Um, chronic disease and pain is tough. So this sorrow one must see, the nature of uh, all of these is sorrow. These, these are the things which the Bhagavan Buddha saw as the prince Siddhartha, and that's what set him off on his spiritual uh, journey. He saw a sick person, he saw a uh, as an old person, and he saw a, a dead person with three sides, and then he saw a monk. So these four sides set him off on a spiritual quest. These four, we are at the end of the quest, Godapada says, you will realize your real nature, which is free of these, free of sorrow. And that is your real nature right now. The problem is not knowing our real nature, Asturia, the witness of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, ever separate from waking, dreaming, dreaming and deep sleep, ever the ground of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep. The, the gross, subtle, and causal universes appear and disappear in you, but you are free of all of them at all times. Not knowing this, we superimpose body and mind upon ourselves. We think, not only think, we make, we make it our living reality. I am this body. I am this sick body. I am this old body. And it will drag on like this for a few more years until I die. No. Right? Now you are not. You are the witness to that. I am this mind, which has got so many defects, desire and restlessness. You are the witness, the ever restful witness of the restless mind. The ever desire-free consciousness, which is the witness of the mind with desires. You don't have desires. If you are aware of the desire in your mind, then it's an object in the mind. You are the witness, ever free of the object. Think, not knowing this, superimposing, identifying with body and mind, with this kind of worldview, Manisha means wisdom or philosophy. With this kind of worldview, these poor fellows, they 
they lose what is their birthright, their innate, natural, instinctive, ever there, we lose it. As if, it's not really lost, never lost, always there. But as if, for practical purposes, it is lost. It's like a billionaire who is on, on uh, welfare. Why? I don't know where my billions are. I don't know. You are actually a billionaire, but you have to go and ask for a handout. Why? Because I can't access my billions. Why can't you access? Because you don't know where they're kept. Here, we don't know how to access our Turiya nature. That's what Vedanta, what Gaudapada wants to introduce us to. Okay. So this was nothing new. Just he's reminding us. He knows we have been out of touch for eight or nine months. So uh, he's reminding us of our real nature. Two questions, it seems. Yes, Swamiji, in the chat as well, there were two questions which came early. Let's see the ones who have raised their hands. Punamji? Yeah, Swamiji, I wanted to know the difference between Gyata and Sakshi. Important question. Difference between knower and witness. Gyata is the knower. And remember, both of them refer to you. It refers to us. So when am I the Gyata and am I the knower? I am the knower when I see. I am seeing. I am hearing. I taste. I smell. I touch. I think. I know my thoughts. I remember. I know my memories. So I, in all of these cases, I am the knower. And when, I, when am I the Sakshi? All the time. I am the consciousness which lights up all this knowing. That consciousness which shines upon the mind and through the mind gets connected with the eyes and now calls itself, the consciousness itself with the mind calls itself, I am the seer or I am the one who is hearing or smelling or tasting or touching. So the Sakshi is the witness which becomes the knower or appears to become the knower in identification with body-mind. In day-to-day, -day, the Jiva is the knower. Gyata. All of us, we consider ourselves to be the knower. We don't give such a philosophical, epistemological term to ourselves, but we practically consider ourselves to be the knower. I am the one who reads Mandukya Upanishad. I listen to the lectures. I operate the computer. Knower, doer. But what am I? Apart from uh, computer, apart from body, apart from mind, apart from thoughts, what am I? Consciousness. That ever-shining consciousness is the witness. Now, this is the often it is a mistake. The knower tries to be the witness. The knower says, "All right, I will stop hearing, listening, talking, thinking. Now I am the witness." Within a few seconds, again, here thinking something, some thinking will come, some hearing, smelling, some desiring will come and become the knower again. The knower does not become the witness. The real witness in Advaita Vedanta, the real witness is permanent. Always there. You don't become it. You don't start it and stop it. Notice, witnessing is constant. Knowing is uh, ever fluctuating. Every episode of knowing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, it starts and stops. It begins and ends. <coughs> Sakshi never begins and ends. Behind every knowing, Sakshi is there. All throughout our waking life, when we are knowing many things. Knowing means objects of knowledge are changing. Many objects of knowledge. 
here and our instruments are changing hearing smelling tasting um, thinking sometimes sense organs sometimes mind and the vrittis in the mind are changing seeing something seeing the coffee is different from smelling the coffee is different from tasting the coffee is different from touching the coffee each vritti is different so knowing is full of change continuously throughout the day we have thousands and thousands of knowing vrittis all of them are lit up by the one constant consciousness but that consciousness is not objective it's the pure subject which you really are advaita vedanta does not make you the consciousness it makes you aware that you are the consciousness this is what it in terms of what we just read that by this kind of philosophical thinking of the dualistic kind one loses one's or appears to lose one's real nature as to real what kind of thinking always being identified with the knower identify with the consciousness which is always there you are free that is your heritage that's that instinctive natural non artificial ever present own nature essential nature what is that sakshi knower is the same sakshi but in association with these other instruments of of body mind important distinction what is the distinction sakshi gyata distinction witness and knower distinction which one are you both actually witness and depending on your pleasure whenever you want whenever you need you can be a knower these are your instruments the mind is your instrument body is your instrument you can be you can hear you can smell you can taste and touch but but no one thing that you are not the knower you are free of the knower the knower depends on you you don't depend on the knower you sakshi and knower are not two different things sakshi is separate from knower but the knower is not separate from sakshi knower cannot function without the sakshi there can be no knowing without consciousness that one consciousness alone makes the knower possible remember knower disappears in deep sleep no knowing is there knower disappears in deep sleep but sakshi is there sakshi is the sakshi of the presence of the knower sakshi is the sakshi of absence of knower witness is the witness of presence of knower witness is the witness of absence of knower also knower comes and goes knower is the jeeva the witness sakshi is brahman turiya which one am i you are the sakshi in reality and because of fun you can happily function as the knower nobody can stop you but don't confuse yourself with the knower the knower is trapped in samsara a knower functions at the level of samsara very good question this one simple thing if we see from moment to moment if we say we just meditate upon it or just notice it knower has all the problems sakshi has no problem at all knower is a character in the movie of your life sakshi is the light or the screen on which the movie plays good any other question another person has raised the hand it seems yes yes uh i just wanted to share two things so not question but two things uh, one thing in relation to what the lady just said i read a quote by meister eckert who said god is when you are not right and i think in this sense he met god as brahman brahman is when you are not you means here in that that sense it you as the individual knower. yes 
Yes. Yeah. And I thought it was very beautiful. And the other thing I wanted to share, I don't know whether you would approve of it, uh, through you or through your podcasts, which have been listening throughout the year while you were gone at Harvard, uh, I found Buddha at the gas pump. Yes. And uh, two days ago, I watched an interview with uh, Tony Parsons, yes. who to me struck me as uh, the modern British version of Gaudapada. Mm. As radical, if not even more so in a way. I, I mean, even Rick Archer did a great job, I thought, interviewing, but he struggled through the interview because Tony Parsons, I think, is so far established, he has no sense of identity whatsoever. Mm. And he went as far as Gaudapada saying, there is no spiritual seeker, there is no uh, uh, spiritual path. Uh, so it, it was yes. just... And, and I'm yeah. glad you brought that up. Um, I mean, with... All respect to Tony Parsons. I've heard some of his talks, a uh, little bit of what he has written. I saw it online. Somebody recommended, send it to me. One thing you have to be careful there. Yeah. Whether he's enlightened or not, supposing he's also, uh, he is enlightened. But what he does is he keeps the teaching at this level, uh, at the level of there is um, no path, there is no seeker, there is no... Bond. But he refuses to teach. He said he doesn't want to teach. He just answers questions. All right, that, that itself is the teaching. Um, now, the problem there is, there is a constant mixture of the ultimate reality level and the transactional reality level. So for example. No, no, for me it was clear, but I, I, I think it's- Yeah, I know for you it's clear. You know, with Kalapada, I yes. would have thrown my iPad against the wall. Uh, right. Because he's so radical and people ask, and then I watched another interview with, uh, with his students. They're just so frustrated. But for me, it was enjoyable because I studied if Gaurapada. You, right. If you have a background of Shankara or Gaurapada, uh, Advaita Vedanta, somebody like Tony Parsons, you can easily digest. You can see where, in what sense you have to understand Tony Parsons. Because as you notice, all the other students, as you said, they'll be very frustrated with those teachings. What's happening? Nothing is getting answered. Um, the advantage of a traditional teaching like Gaurapada's is, or Gaurapada or Shankara's is, is at every level the, the whole system is built up. And finally, this system is swept away. But system is built up so that it makes sense. If you start off at the top, so Gaurapada, for example, in the second chapter, he said, uh, there, is no, uh, uh, there is no origination, there is no cessation, there is no liberation, there, uh, there is no one who's seeking liberation, no one who's, who's a spiritual seeker or practitioner. Huh? And this is the ultimate truth. All right. Now, if you say that, and you keep saying that, and nothing less than that, then it will not make sense. See, if you stand at the top of the roof, and people are standing down, down there uh, on the uh, ground floor, and you say, come up here, but you refuse to send down a ladder. If you refuse to, <laughs> then it's a, it's, it's a problem. Uh, in a traditional teaching like Advaita Vedanta, like Gaurapada or Shankara, the ladder is there. It takes you up there. Uh, otherwise, it can be very frustrating for the, and it can be very confusing for the student also. You will, ha you will see in many of the cases of the students, you will notice, not only Tony Parsons, but there are other teachers like that. Um, in, you will see in case of many of the students, uh, they, they are attracted because they get something but not everything. And so there's great confusion and great struggle and unhappiness also. 
Yes. But good, he pointed it out. Hmm. Yes. One more? Is there anybody else? No. All right, we have run out of time. Yes, many of these observations um, are really useful. And each of them you can spend, um, you know, time considering it and exploring it further. So uh, Dave, like what she just said about Tony Parsons or what Poonamji said about Sakshi and uh, uh, the uh, Gyata, the witness and the knower, these are doorways to enlightenment. If you explore them, you walk through it and at least at least clarity will come you can, maybe you can't claim that i'm enlightened but uh, a lot of clarity will come the zoom is actually quite uh, uh, <laughs> quite amenable to such use i think let me do a shanti om shanti 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 hari om tat sat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu